The Gov Innovator Podcast is sponsored by Mathematica, a trusted partner for government, philanthropy, and private sector changemakers working to improve public well-being through data and evidence. To learn more, visit mathematica.org. Welcome to the Gov Innovator Podcast. I'm Andy Feldman. Our focus today is how partnerships with academics can help federal agencies expand their evidence-building capacity and meaningfully implement the Evidence Act. With us is Dave Manoli from Georgetown University. Here's a clip. I think that there's really a lot more that can be done. IPA positions can be useful for a variety of additional government agencies beyond what they're currently being used for. And I think even the agencies that are currently using IPAs uh, could build on and expand uh, the use of IPAs or how IPAs are used. The Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act was enacted in early 2019 and has led a wide range of federal departments to take new steps in building capacity to build and use evidence, including developing learning agendas. The act, however, didn't come with new funding, so resources are likely a constraint in many departments for doing this type of evidence work. It's one reason why the topic of researcher-practitioner partnerships is especially timely. It's also a valuable topic for agencies not covered by the Evidence Act, that want to better use evidence and data to inform decisions. To learn more, we're joined by Dave Manoli. He's an economist and a professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, and he's collaborated with the IRS on several research projects, as we highlighted on this podcast in 2016. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me again. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to talk more. Dave, I want to ask you a simple question to start, which is, why do you think researcher-practitioner partnerships should be on every results-focused leader's radar? So, uh, you know, you mentioned the learning agendas, and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, developing plans for uh, or capacity for evidence and, you know, evaluation strategies and communication strategies, it's really critical to uh, have broad perspectives on that. So, you know, uh, I think researchers can bring new methods um, and human capital development on cutting edge research techniques to the table. Uh, they can be relatively low cost. Um, and at the same time, they can also communicate to a wide variety of audiences, both to make results and methods transparent and to provide validation uh, for the uh, evidence that's being used uh, you know, as, as part of the learning agenda. That's helpful, Day. One of the best examples that I know of of a successful researcher-practitioner partnership is the one that you've developed with the IRS. We discussed that back in 2016, but I'd like to ask you to get our listeners up to speed again. Tell us about what questions the IRS is interested in and how you, as an academic economist, have been able to partner with them to help them answer those questions. Sure. So, the IRS is generally interested in working to improve taxpayer outcomes and, and tax compliance outcomes, and uh, particularly thinking about uh, the social safety net or low-income populations, uh, improving earned income tax credit compliance is, is a key step. And you know, I worked with the IRS on this topic for several years now, and we have similar interests in thinking about understanding individuals' decisions and behavioral insights. So why would individuals not claim tax benefits uh, that they might be eligible for? Uh, how can we develop behavioral insights and test uh, theories about this? 
For example, if individuals don't necessarily know the benefits that they could, could be eligible for, would informing them then increase tax filing and uh, EITC compliance. So we're able to you know, work together to develop theories, but then at the same time, it's useful to have additional hands on deck to go about the data analysis and actual, actual implementation uh, of these tests or developing randomized controlled trials to test for these uh, behavioral insights. And just continuing your own example day, tell us how that arrangement was set up, that partnership, using what's known as an IPA agreement. Exactly. So I work, I've been working with the IRS through uh, what's known as an IPA assignment or an IPA agreement. So this is the uh, Intergovernmental Personnel Act. And uh, basically, it allows me to be on detail uh, at the IRS. So I'm able to work as if I am an employee uh, at the IRS. And um, that allows me to, you know, to be very concrete. Uh, sit in the same cubicle or office space uh, as my co-authors so that we can uh, literally put our heads together or work side by side at the computer to uh, you know go about accomplishing this uh, somewhat massive task um, you know and, and developing this uh, randomized control trial and and administrative data. So I'm on loan from my home institution, so I'm still a professor at, uh, at Georgetown, but then at the same time, I can work uh, with the administrative data and with my co-authors directly uh, to provide additional labor and insights uh, to go about these projects. And can I ask you, Dave, to tell us one more layer of detail about IPAs, just some of the specifics, the logistics, who pays the salary, for example? Sure. So IPAs, they can come in many shapes and uh, sizes. So in my case, I am paid from the university and I continue to do my university work in terms of uh, teaching. And then as part of my research, I work uh, in-house at the IRS on on various research projects. Um, So this is a zero cost IPA uh, from the IRS's perspective. Um, So there's no payment from the IRS to me. But then you know, I just go about my research as part of my university responsibilities. At the same time, there are formal programs uh, at the IRS and other agencies that uh, basically uh, recruit or solicit ideas or projects from uh, IPAs. So, for example, the IRS has a joint statistical research program uh, where individual uh, researchers at you know in, uh, various universities can submit proposals to work on uh, uh, various projects. And then uh, the IRS can evaluate these projects and their capacity to host IPAs and then bring them on board. There's also other forms of IPAs, uh, you know, for example, working with um, the National Science Foundation or other uh, government agencies. Another formal program is through the Office of Evaluation Sciences. Uh, so, for example, uh, they are able to bring academics on and uh, they partially cover the academic salaries themselves. Um, or they're able to have reimbursable IPAs so that other agencies can cover some of the costs for IPAs. And then uh, these IPAs can be placed in other government agencies uh, beyond just IRS and Treasury. That's helpful. Date, one of the insights that you've shared with me over the years is that while IPAs can be relatively straightforward to set up, you do need the right type of researcher who can balance the needs of their own research agenda with those of the agency. You need an agency who knows how to cooperate well with researchers. So this is not just like a turn the crank operation that you can just, you know, have IPAs and they'll be sure to be successful. On the other hand, it does seem like a tool 
that could be used in a lot more agencies. Is it your sense that this could be used much more widely to help bolster evidence capacity in agencies? I do think that uh, we could do a lot more with IPAs. And I think that there are potentially a couple dials that we could turn or at least highlight to get a sense of what we could do with IPAs. So as you mentioned, it takes the right people to go about this. And I think what's really important is highlighting what are the factors that create an effective partnership. So this is everything from you know, transparent communication um, to aligning expertise or, or recognizing, you know, the different advantages that people bring to the table. So once we sort of understand those pieces, if you put these pieces together with IPAs, I think that there's really a lot more that can be done. IPA positions can be useful for a variety of additional government agencies beyond what they're currently being used for. And I think even the agencies that are currently using IPAs uh, could build on and expand uh, the use of IPAs or how IPAs are used. For our listeners, I'll post the agenda of the workshop that Day co-hosted with Kathy Stack back in November of 2020 at the Partnership for Public Service about using IPAs within federal agencies. You may be interested in seeing the topics and the speakers for those of you who want to learn more. For now, Day Manoli. Day, thanks for being willing to share your insights with us and congrats on all you've been able to accomplish with your federal agency partners. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with you and I, I hope we continue our conversations. 